2: This is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by Andrea Benjamin, um, who's the author of Racial Coalition Building in Local Elections, Elite Cues, and Cross-Ethnic Voting. This book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2017, so it's a little bit older than a lot of the new books, um, but it lays some really fascinating groundwork for a lot of ongoing research with regard to our understandings of cross-ethnic. Ethnic voting um, across the United States. But I'm going to let Andrea tell us a lot about that. I'd like to welcome Andrea Benjamin to the New Books Network and ask her to tell us a little bit about herself and how she came to the project about racial coalition building in local elections. Hi, Andrea. Hi,
0: thank you for having me. That's such a kind introduction. You know, this is my first book, so it really comes from my dissertation. And I applied to graduate school to study Black and Latino voting behavior, um, which is maybe strange because I don't know what I was thinking at that time. It was probably just something that interested me. But I'm from a really diverse place, and it was just something that was in my spirit. Um, Through the course of graduate school, though, you know, you take a lot of classes and Sometimes I strayed away from the idea, but I eventually came back to it. And part of that was because during my time at graduate school, as I was working on my prospectus, we saw this huge push to elect uh, Latino mayors in in our largest cities, which one of the things I think is strange is that, you know, so many of our largest cities haven't really had um, a diverse set of mayors. And we're working towards that. It's gotten better recently. Um, but the project really sort of developed... Uh, in that context of, you know, Villa Ragosa running for mayor mayor in Los Angeles, uh, Fernando Ferrer running for mayor in New York, and really thinking, what would it take to elect uh, a Latinx candidate to the mayor's office in some of our biggest cities? Um, But then it really sort of came together in thinking about the role that partisanship could or couldn't play. And I went to the University of Michigan, so partisanship is a big deal to us. And so really the project, landed squarely in local politics because so many of the local elections are nonpartisan and so it gave me an opportunity to really try to think about what other identities matter in those elections what other cues can sort of emerge uh, and so that's really how the project took shape um, and of course there's a lot of fits and starts right so anyone who's listening and has has done research like this I'll be honest I set out to find black Latino coalitions and I thought that they would just appear and I would just find them and learn about them. And that just wasn't the case. Candidates weren't as explicit with that term. And so then through the course of just doing research, just reading, honestly, a ton of media coverage about local elections, uh, I began to realize that there was a role for endorsements. And so that's how the project really took shape. So I thought about these ideas for a really long time in the book. It took a long time for the book to come out. So, uh, but that's how I got interested in it is really, it was my original application to graduate school project in some ways, but the shape that it took obviously evolved over time.
2: So you've had a longstanding interest in the question of Black and Latino voting in the United States. Um, and it sounds to me like it sort of did, it did shift in shape, but it's sort of the, the um, genesis still remained in place. Is that correct?
0: Correct, yeah, I knew that that's it just meant a lot to me again, just given where I grew up. I think maybe there's time to talk about limitations, but again, for anyone yeah. that's listening, and you know you sort of you know you sort of write your book and then you look back. I think the biggest sort of thing that was so hard, uh, given when I collected this data, which we can totally talk about, the data collection because it was is not how it is now. I think um, I really wish that I had had room for Asian Americans in my book. Um, and again, given where I'm from, it was just, I couldn't afford it in terms of time, in terms of the effort that it took. Um, and it's the one, I think the, the, it's, it's just one of the regrets of the book, um, is that it couldn't be everybody, I guess.
2: And I totally get that. And I, I do see that you periodically throughout the book, you do note sort of Asian Americans, particularly in the West, um, as having um, as as being a, a factor in a lot of the potential coalitions, um, but I wanted to to ask you about some of these um, concepts that are also sort of the basis of your book. As you say, you're talking about local elections. You're specifically looking at the elections um, for mayor. Uh, in a number of cities. Can you talk about why specifically you were looking at mayoral elections in the largest cities in the United States?
0: Sure. Yeah. So as I mentioned before, it really came down to trying to sort of take partisanship off the table. Although, you know, New York still does a partisan primary, so it enters it in a strange way there. Um, But the other piece was, is that I really wanted to think about the potential for coalitions, right? So Um, obviously Brownie, Marshall and tab is sort of that classic coalition literature, sun and shine comes along and adds to it. Um, and, uh, I wanted to think about a place where there was a potential, right? So when you think about coalition building, you know, you think about the candidate taking stock of, well, who can support me? How, who, how can I win? And in a place, you know, if I'm thinking about blacks and Latinos, like what's their potential for coalition building, I needed there to be enough black and Latino voters, you know, Latino voters is still tough. You know, we're sort of seeing them uh, uh, sort of come come into more prominence, um, and you know, there are challenges for that community sometimes when it comes to voting. So, it, you know, but I did I ended up in the lo- the largest cities because that's where blacks and Latinos live. Right again, things have changed even since uh, my early research in that we know that 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 people are living lots of places now that we maybe they didn't a while ago. But at the time. The, the largest cities uh, sort of had the largest Black and Latino populations, which to me set it up that that was where the greatest potential was for them to maybe look around and say, hey, can we do this together? What might that look like?
2: And and one of the things that you also talk about, besides the fact that the mayoral elections are mostly technically nonpartisan, mm-hmm. Um <laughs> In, in a very sort of uh, bifurcated and hyper-partisan time that we live in, is that um, the coalitions and the, the sort of elections in the cities are also different than the national or state uh, sort of coalitions and electoral behavior. Um, and I guess that's one of my, my questions for you is, um, beyond the partisanship question Um, how did you see that these coalitions, um, started to operate in ways that were distinct from say national politics?
0: Sure. That's such a great question. I think you know, for someone who studies local politics, to me, it's much more exciting at the local level. And I know no one, people are listening and they're saying, no way, Andrea, because we spend so much time thinking about presidential elections or Senate elections, even our gubernatorial elections. But if you sort of immerse yourself in local politics, it's there's so many moving parts and there are so many ways that we have access to the candidates when they run and even when they're elected, that to me, it's just a different vibe, right? Like you could run into your mayor at the grocery store in some cities. Um, you might just know your mayor. You can attend these meetings. And so to me, what I sort of the thing I loved about learning about all these elections, and of course, I mean, I guess you might not run into the mayor of New York City. He seems like a busy guy. Um, but where I live, I, I know my mayor um pretty decently, and that's been the case for a long time, each place I've lived. But um You know, and then there are just these strange quirks that come out in some of these elections, right? And so I think local elections, to me, you know, the turnout is lower, right? And so that's one thing that 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 is a challenge for those of us that that study this uh, level of government. But I think that because it's lower, you sort of also get to see these people who are so committed to their city, right? So one of the other sort of reform era uh, reforms that you know these these reforms that come out of local politics is you know, a lot of mayoral elections don't take place at the same time as presidential elections. And of course, that was by design, right, to in some ways, keep turnout lower and also make sure that maybe there was less corruption um, and those types of things. But, you know, so it's Tuesday in May, right? So if you're in Los Angeles, their initial election is usually in May, right? So it's like a Tuesday in May, and you're voting, Right, and so that's really different than sort of this big two-year lead-up that we do for presidential elections, um, and that's not to you know say anything. I mean, Los Angeles uh, spends a lot of money on their their mayoral election. The last uh, the last really competitive one in 2013, which is in the book, uh, they spent a lot of money for for the amount of turnout that ended up sort of generating. So, I mean, local elections just they they just have their own character and. I think they're much more exciting if I'm being honest.
2: Um, I I know this is often a, a sort of point of contention in political science between people who study local politics and people who study national politics.
0: Yeah. I'm going to make a push here that local politics is the best politics. I don't know if (laughs) Emily Ferris said that or
2: I was going to say, Emily Ferris is definitely on board with you on that one. Shout out to Emily for that good tagline. Um, and so I wanted to talk about some of the the terminology that you use in the book, but also how this fits into an understanding of of what you found in your research. Um, and so you you talk about specifically not only the coalition's or the potential for coalitions. And so as you note, the coalitions that you mostly that you pay the most attention to are about white voters, Black voters and Latino voters. Um, And as you say, if you had had more time and and funding, you would have also integrated Asian American voters. Can you talk about what we mean by coalitions among these groups?
0: Sure. So I want to shout out the reviewers for the book because they really pushed me on this. And so, you know, in the book, it's, you know, I try to say elite as much as possible, right? Because there is you know, the the types of coalitions I'm interested in are sort of elite driven in the sense that for me, you know, these elites have to sort of make these agreements sort of and advertise these endorsements, which to me is a signal that we've built a coalition. It was sort of the easiest way to measure this 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 relationship, because, again, um, in my initial research, no one was telling anyone, oh, I built this black Latino coalition. Please support us again in later elections that that has happened and it maybe had, you know, mixed results. Um but it is elite driven, right? And so the voters enter in the analysis only to the extent that they support it. Now that's a limited view of coalitions, right? Because even as we're watching today, there's a ground up, right? There's a grassroots coalition that can emerge as well. Um, that that to me felt harder to try to capture in the type of analyses I was doing. Um, so yes, very top down, very elite driven. Um, but again, trying to think about if, if you built a coalition, how will we know? And so in my sort of estimation or measurement of it is that if I built a coalition, I'm going to advertise it in a very particular way. And given, again, the number of articles I read about local elections, one of the ways that, that candidates signal their coalitions is through these endorsements.
2: And so you talk about these elite endorsements and cues. Um and so for for people who are not necessarily immersed in the in the literature um uh, who's making these cues and what are they
0: Sure so yeah so cues are you know just little I guess little packets of information that a voter might use um obviously in most of our elections the greatest cue is partisanship right if you haven't studied up and attended a million candidate forums or done all your research on who's running for judge in your area, you yourself might show up to the the ballot or to the voting booth and you look at your ballot and say, well I'm I belong to this party. I see my party's letter here. I'm gonna vote for them. Right. That's sort of like the just a very well-known cue. And so to me, the you know the, the endorsements enter as a very similar piece of information, right? And so a lot of groups will give endorsements. Um other candidates will give endorsements. And so throughout the book, there are different ways that, that we try to measure that and think about that. Um, in, in the Los Angeles example, uh, for instance, in 2013, we're able to collect some exit poll data and you know, we ask people, sort of, are you aware of any candidate endorsements? And for African American voters in Los Angeles, very aware accurately of who Magic Johnson endorsed, right? So even though we might not think of Magic Johnson as you know the most political person. Um, when we reached out to the community and asked who are some who are the top black endorsements endorsers in this election for for African Americans, it came back as as Magic Johnson. So we put him on the exit poll. And again, African Americans were very aware of who he endorsed, and it didn't cause it right because it's not causal. But you know those voters did so su- they did support the candidate that Magic J- Johnson endorsed. Um, but other you know newspapers emerged in the book as sort of the best the best winners, right? Um, and part of that is the timing of when they endorse. So typically, a newspaper is the last endorser. They're not the first endorser. And so they've had the whole campaign to sort of take stock of things. They can count the other endorsements. Um, and so they have, you know, in the, I think the 25 elections that I look at a little bit more in depth in the top four cities, so New York, Los Angeles, um, Chicago, and Houston they have the best record, right? If if there's 25 elections, they pick the winners maybe like 22 times or something. Um, So, you know, so organizations, local organizations, newspapers, other candidates, these are the people offering the endorsements. And again, the belief is um, sort of you as the voter can sort of use that information in the same way that you might use the party affiliation on your ballot to say, oh, hey, I... I support the Sierra Club. I love the environment. They've endorsed Candidate A. I will support Candidate A. right? And so they act as these little pieces of information that require a little bit less lifting um, for the voter to the extent that they want it. I always still encourage everyone, like you should do all your research on your candidates. But if you're in a pinch, you might just figure out, well, who do I feel close to? Who do I trust? And then maybe you can see if that organization or that group or even that person or that, can't, that other elected official has offered an endorsement and use that information, um, which is pretty efficient in some ways.
2: So like the partisanship, as you've noted, it's a, it's a way to have us understand or cue the voter in terms of saying, this is, you know, I think like you do. And so this is the person who's in line with that thinking. Um, and this is part of your theory. That's the basis for your analysis in the book. Um, which is co-ethnic elite cues theory. And we've talked a bit about elite cues and we've talked a little bit about co-ethnic. So can you put it all together for us? Sure.
0: So I guess, let me just start with this takeaway, which is I usually tell people is that I don't think co-ethnic endorsements matter in every election. I think that that's uh, not giving enough credit to voters to be savvy um, but in the book, I do think that there are certain conditions where Blacks and Latinos decide to tune in to co-ethnics, right, people who share their racial ethnic identity, to figure out who to vote for. Um, for African Americans, um, those conditions are a little bit uh, more flexible, I guess. Um, and so endorsements from a Black organization can, in fact, help some candidates do better among Black voters. However, for Latinx voters, the the conditions are just a little bit different, right? And so what what matters to them is the context of the election. It matters for Black people too. It's just to a a different extent, or it looks a little bit different. But by context, I mean sort of when are we thinking about our own racial and ethnic identity? And so I talk about the racial and ethnic salience of a campaign. And so again, if the, the point of the mayoral campaign is simply things like How do we get our property values up? And are we going to bring this development to town? There's nothing about my theory that would suggest, oh, in that condition, Blacks and Latinos are looking to other Black and Latino organizations or leaders to make a decision. That doesn't, that sounds ridiculous. Um, But if the race were to be something racialized, right, and we can think about the current context we're in right now, where we have all tuned in to our city budgets, our city council meetings. And there is a racialized issue, policing, right? How are we spending our money on policing? Do Black and brown communities feel differently about that that issue? Do they want to see the money spent differently? This might be a time where in a local election, yes, Black and Latino voters might be thinking to themselves, which candidate should I vote for in my next mayoral election? Well, last time we were thinking about these police budgets, candidate A said, let's fully fund the police. And candidate B said, let's reallocate funds what are other Black people saying? What are other Latinx people saying, right? And so in that sense, it's the context that would then lead them to look around to other people that look like them, as you mentioned, maybe that they trust and say, oh, Black people say, let's vote for candidate B, maybe I'll vote with them. Again, not everyone's going to do this. Some, some voters are going to spend the time to do all their own research, totally respect that, think that's a good idea. But again, if the, you know, if the election was just about property values or some type of zoning question, even though those things can have racial impacts, I don't know that I think voters would just tune in to other coethnics. That seems a little, uh, that's that seems unlikely. Um, but in the book, you know, again, when you do some of this research, you have to make choices. And so even though in the real world, you know, race and ethnicity can become salient in numerous ways. For my research, I kind of had to be careful about some things, right? So um, race said the city can enter an election in negative ways, right? And so the example that I like to give from the book is in 2001, when Fernando Ferrer first ran for the Democratic nomination in New York. Um, Again, it would have been so great. He would have been the first Latino mayor, Puerto Rican mayor in the city's history, right? And for those keeping track, we still haven't achieved that goal in New York City, the most diverse city in our country, Right. So he's running against green, I believe, 2001. Yes. And all of a sudden these mailers show up in people's mailboxes and they say, can a Puerto Rican run this city? That's extremely negative, but it's extremely right? It's like a racialized or ethnic con- context. Right. Um, and so in that situation, I would expect that black and brown voters in New York City probably were like, hey, that's kind of racial. Um What does that have to do with anything? We're supposed to be picking the mayor on these qualifications. And so, again, in that situation, we would expect them that there's a chance that they might look around and say, well, what are other groups saying about this candidate? Can I listen to them? But that's negative, right? And so at the point you're about to collect all your research or, you know, do these these expensive experiments at the time, again, it's cheaper now. So, you know, things have changed. You know, I just, I couldn't risk it right? And so I, the other way that race can enter in a more positive way is, oh my gosh, this will be the first X group member to lead our city, right? And so in that sense, you might, it's a much more positive thing. Um, it's it's at least framed more positively. Um, but even for the book, I decided for my studies, which I think we'll get into with the experiments, is to just talk about it in terms of issue positions, because that's the other way that race can enter, right? So again, thinking about our current times, you know, for a candidate to come out and say, I support Black Lives Matter, to me, that's racial, right? And so they're making a decision for those that support that, you know, they're going to be thankful. But for those that, that do not support that, that's also a piece of information for them, right? But it's an issue position, right? So, well, maybe not that, but, um, you know, defunding the police or not, right? That That's an issue position. So that's the way I chose to talk about it in the book. And so in, in one of the experiments, um, the candidates are not taking a racial position necessarily, but it's in the context of a racialized issue. And so then in those conditions is when I expect to see the most movement that a Black voter would support an outgroup candidate. Of course, I'm interested in when they support Latinx candidates and whether or not Latino vo- Latinx voters will support Black candidates in those contexts.
1: This episode is brought to you by Shopify.
2: And and this is what I found really interesting in your book is you you have the data from a number of mayoral elections in the United States, and you sort of say, well, it shows that sometimes there are these particular coalitions, say, white voters and uh, Latina Latinx voters, and in sometimes there's a coalition, maybe. Um, between other coalitions, but then you said, hey, one of the things I want to see is what happens if we put together our survey, experimental surveys, to try to see if we can tease out more patterns. Um, because your your sort of group of elections is not that large, um, given, you know, looking at five cities, essentially. So can you talk a little bit about the move from the the survey data that you had from the elections in city, in mayors, uh, mayors in cities, to designing um, this kind of survey to try to see if you could cultivate more of a pattern? Yes,
0: that is such a good question. Um, yeah. So my favorite thing to say when I talk about this book is like, it sounded good. But we didn't know if it was causal, right? It's like <laughs> it, look, it looked like black people were moving with these endorsements, and it looked like Latinx voters were moving with these endorsements, and it looked like they were doing something together, but it wasn't causal and so the design of the the survey experiment was really to try to really drill in and so you know I've mentioned a couple of times so the the data from uh, the dissertation essentially was collected most of it by hand, um, and by that I mean we were in the community collecting data. It was what I could afford. Um, the survey experiment was randomized, right, in the sense that we didn't know anything about the voters, so what treatment they read was unknown until we, you know, until we essentially entered all the data and you know coded for the treatment, and then we were able to see the results. Um, but again, I thought that there were three moving parts, right? So the race of the candidate mattered. Um, the endorsement or not mattered. And then the context mattered. And in the experiments, again, just given some constraints, I never allowed Black voters to support Black candidates. And I never allowed Latinx voters to support Latinx candidates. I felt pretty confident in in that decision. Um, If I had had more money, I probably would have tested it. But we know from a lot of research, right? We believe in racial voting, right? This notion that you know, barring any sort of strange circumstances, you know, ethnic, ethnic, and racial groups vote in blocks. And you know, by the time my book came out, um Hodgnell and Trounstein sort of proved that in a larger data set, which they shared with me, which I am so thankful for. And that's where I was able to really, in the that first chapter, try to introduce like this is where groups were voting together and like each other, and this is where they weren't. Um, but they demonstrated that that voters are voting voting in blocks, right? So and, and again, because of racial voting, we know that they'll support their in-group candidates unless something is really wrong, right? So like not a mayoral election, but thinking about, you know, African-Americans didn't support Herman Cain, right? So that that wasn't quite the right Black candidate for Black voters. So there are exceptions. Um, but really, so thinking about those three pieces led to a two by two by two experiment, right? So um, moving three things. So there's a baseline treatment where it's just two white candidates. Um, they don't, you know, there's, there's, they, they have sort of issue positions, but there's nothing, there's no additional piece of information. Build on that experiment. I mean, build on that treatment by adding an endorsement for candidate two. Build on that by changing the race of candidate two, right? So again, blacks will see him as either white or Latinx. Um, so adding that he's Latinx, and then adding the. Um, the endorsement of, of the white candidate, right. Or adding the endorsements, right. So candidate two either gets an endorsement or not. So that's four treatments, then replicating those four treatments, but adding this context of a racialized issue for both groups. So that's a two by two by two design. And so again, if you, you know, believe that you had good randomization and you, you know, that you, you know, you, you have a clean design, then any differences in candidate support among the, the respondents, you want to attribute that to the treatment. Right. And so for African Americans, again, given those designs, which maybe was not the clearest way, I don't know if I said it the best, but um, when a Latinx candidate received an endorsement, they were more likely to support that candidate relative to the baseline candidate, which again, they're exactly the same. The only thing I did was, you know, give him an endorsement and change his name. But just a white candidate alone with the endorsement, black voters or black respondents were not more likely to support him or him in that context. And then when you add the racialized context, um, then the white candidate with an endorsement got more support from black respondents but the latinx candidate with the endorsement got the, still got got more support and so again we you know we hope with the survey experiment that the design is clean enough that each iteration you can sort of compare um, to the baseline and 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 see what happens. And then we replicated that with a Latinx community, but again, they were only exposed to either white candidates or black candidates. Um, on the voting straight up, the thing about the Latinx population that I surveyed, they it was really just that across all treatments, candidate two did well. So there wasn't enough distinction, right? So they didn't like candidate one regardless of the treatments, but they all seemed to like candidate two. So that's why I say it's just a little bit different. So with the Latinx sample, We had to move to another variable, which is, do you think candidates care about people like you? And there we get a similar pattern as the black voters, right? That they did think that the um, black candidate with an endorsement cared a little bit more about them, but really the black candidate with the endorsement in the racialized context did better. The white candidate with the endorsement in the racialized context also did better. But I think I say this in the book, I don't know that I would recommend to any candidate to make the context racialized. Mostly because you fear you you risk backlash from white voters, um, so you know race entering the, the the election is sort of a risk that you take. Um, but once we had that experiment, right? We had those results. Then I really shifted. So then, one, I got a job and I had some money, so then I could pay for these magical experiments that you like literally just you know, write up and work on like, you know, someone else keys it up for you and then they field it. And then one day you get a magical data set back and you're like, what? I didn't even have to have any blood, sweat or tears for this data. Look at this. Um, but in that, in that one with the national sample, I was really interested in testing support for an actual coalition, right? So there the treatments evolve. They're not exactly the same, but for both black and Latinx respondents, when an out-group candidate emerges and says that they have a Black Latino coalition, or even just having the endorsements, they're more likely to support them. Uh, that experiment also allowed me to sort of figure out what white voters were doing. And I think what's most interesting is that only the Black candidate on his own was punished by black voter, uh, by white voters. So even a Black candidate building a, a biracial coalition with Latinx community members it didn't, you know, that helped them essentially with white voters, right? Um, Which I think is interesting, um, just because I think these candidates, when they're deciding to run and sort of figuring out their campaign strategy, it's hard not to consider white voters when we know that they turn out at higher rates in local elections. And so they're just sort of, you kind of have to be cognizant of them. Um, And so then with that data, we were able, I was able to show that, okay, Blacks and Latino, you know, Latinx community members are willing to support these outgroup candidates, even when they explicitly say, I want to build a Black Latinx, you know, coalition. Um, so that was that. But again, that was a national survey and it was easier than the other data to collect, which if anyone wants to email me, they can. I'll always talk about this because it was just such a, it was like night and day. And now we collect data for so much less money and it's so much easier Um but I know my data that I collected by hand in and out. Even <laughs> even this many years later, I'm like, oh yeah, it was that thing, and I'll like be able to know exactly what it was um, because I spent so much time with it. So,
2: and and so what what you talk about in the book, and you sort of you you I mean, this is a a, a very well researched. Obviously, there's there's really deep data in this, and and you're trying to sort of put together. An understanding of what's what's going on on, as you say, on multiple levels, um, but you also sort of nod your head at, you know, if somebody's going to run for office, they should consider these things. Um, and so, can you talk a little bit about um, how your book, in a certain sense, is is potentially a handbook for people who might be running for office? and particularly in diverse situations where they have not only elites, but the voters themselves are possibly taking cues from their ethnic or racial groups?
0: Yeah. So this is such, yeah, this is such a good question. I have been doing a lot of the, I've been having a lot of these conversations, again, given our current context, which, again, I never would have predicted that this would be the case. It was always my dream between you and me to have this book be a, hand, a handbook to any candidate. And I've you know and I've worked with candidates in, in cities and tried to sort of offer this expertise. Um, and some of them have been successful, some of them haven't. So we can talk about that. But I think to me, the number one thing that I learned through all my research is I think candidates need to be willing to listen. And I know that that sounds really silly, but I think that that's really the first step to even gaining the endorsement, right? And so if you think, if you believe me, if you believe my theory that, hey, I'm a candidate, I'm a black candidate, and I really wanna build a coalition that's gonna bring me to office, and I wanna serve these communities, to me, the first step, you know, obviously you need to listen to your own community, but then if you really wanna build that diverse coalition, Find out what those communities need. And I think in in the cities that I've studied subsequently, that's the one thing that I've that I've really just picked up on is that the candidates that sort of gain that super diverse support. They're good listeners. And by that, I mean, instead of telling communities what they think they need, they're listening to what those communities need and then implementing that into their um, campaign strategy. Right. And so um, one example that I give that's not in the book, but it's sort of related to my next project is is a, I've done a lot of research in Durham. And Durham is, you know, has a history of being sort of like a, you know, very black and white town, a black and white city, a, a long history of black political incorporation. They had a black mayor for 16 years. And then since the year 2000, you know, we just maybe since 1990, we've just seen this huge Latinx population explosion. And so trying to figure out, well, how are they going to incorporate? And in 2017, a candidate emerged, a black candidate that said, do you know that none of our city documents are available in Spanish, and none of our meetings are translated out in Spanish. And that, to me, let me know that that candidate had been with the Latinx community and just listened. And that doesn't mean that everyone who's a member of that community only speaks Spanish. I know that. That's ignorant. People speak English. That's great. But some people really do need those documents and need those meetings translated in Spanish. And that was a part of their campaign. They said, the first thing I want to do if I'm elected is figure out how do we translate these meetings and how do we translate these documents in a meaningful way? They did well with everyone, right? That was a great, sort of just a good example of listening. And even though there's not a Latinx organization at the time in Durham that gives endorsements, it was still just that just that evidence that, you know what, when you're listening to the communities, that's one way to gain their support. Um, and so I think that to me is really what I hope people take away from the book, is that yes, endorsements matter, but we should be asking ourselves maybe, how do we earn the endorsement? And I think you earn the endorsement from organizations by, participating in their process, listening and and offering meaningful responses to their needs um, because you know just any old endorsement you know who cares maybe no one matters but when we know it comes from the community it comes from a place of truly wanting to help that community. I think that it that that authenticity really shines through
2: um, And so you you made mention um, uh, of the work that you're doing now. Um, Since this book came out, and maybe you moved from one place to another place, as many of us academics do. Um, So, can I ask you, Andrea, what it is that you are working on now? Sure. So, in in some ways, I'm I'm working on what 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 could have been in my first
0: book, but I didn't have my life together. In some ways, right? So, I am thinking about diversity of city councils um, and sort of these changing demographics, right? So, as I mentioned maybe at the start of my research for this book, you know, it seemed like, okay, I know where Black and Latinx people live together. Um, it's these cities that, you know, we know them, you know, maybe Dallas could have been in the book or maybe um, uh, San Antonio or something, right, but sort of have to make a cutoff. Um, but now people are sort of moving everywhere, right? And so what is the value of a diversity council? And one thing that the that the new project looks at is, as it turns out, our city councils aren't quite as diverse as we want them to be. Um, and so there are limitations to even me saying that right now in the year 2020 and that, you know, again, because local elections happen all the time, you know, we sort of had to make a cutoff with our data. So the data that we coded in the top 100 cities, plus these additional uh, really diverse and really not diverse cities that we added to the data set is, is 2017. And that's just because even by the time we finished, if we had finished a week later there could have been an election that made it different right so we sort of had to make this cut off but then we think to ourselves okay so how representative are these councils and they're just they're just not as good as we want them to be so to me that leads to another puzzle which is well what outputs are these councils putting out then Um, And so the new book really thinks about, right, because I do think who you elect matters, right? You want a council that's amenable to community demands, but it's politics. And so you can't win every time. And I know that, but you still want a council that's willing to listen, willing to engage with you. And so what we're seeing right now, uh, again, it's a really good time to be working on these things, is a new interest in the access that we have to our local elected officials. And so in the book, we're really interested in how do communities make demands of their councils and what happens to them? Because you can think about one route, uh, maybe a much more Browning Marshall and Tab or Sun and Shine route, although they thought about these things as well. I'm not the first person to think about these things, but you might say to yourself, I want X policy in the city. We should have someone run for city council or mayor. That's going to take some time. You get there. You could you could get what you want, but you need to make sure that the that council member or that mayor has the coalition they need on the council to get your stuff done and so it could be it could be good but it could take longer than you want it to the alternative is how do you ask the council for what you want and people who work in local politics know that there's almost a script right and if you if you've been recently watching your city council elections you might have seen this right so in cities where they you know there were coalitions on both sides either to fully fund the police or defund the police You might've heard a lot of people sign up and back to back to back. They're saying the same thing. Hi, my name is Andrea. I live at one, two, three green street. I live in ward seven, whatever. I'm here to say, I want this policy enacted. And then the next person comes on and they have a very similar script, right? It's that these groups are able to take advantage of the access that we have to local politics, but because they're organized and they can really get people in the meetings and get the, you know, get them to engage you might see, oh, actually now this council did vote in favor of this policy or they voted in favor of this other policy. But it's just a more direct way to get what you want. And so it is still a coalition, right, regardless of how long-term it is. Um, and so doing interviews with those groups um, to figure out what was your strategy, what did you hope would happen, asking them did they ever think about running a candidate, um, and also trying to take stock of their wins and losses, right, because, again, you don't get everything, Um But I think in our current times, probably the most sort of well-known example is the Amazon uh, plant that was supposed to go into Long Island City in New York. And if you think about that as an example, the city council had already approved all the the good benefits to Amazon, the tax cuts, the incentives, and the community said, we don't want this here. And they didn't say, you know what, in two years when our city council seat is open, we can run someone and get rid of this plant or this center. They they, they they organized, they emerged, and that, that did not go into Long Island City, right? And so that's a good example of what happens when the community doesn't want something um, or, you know, when they sort of organize. And so I'm interested in those cases. And again, to be living through this time and just watching community after community have these conversations, have these coalitions emerge is just exciting, but it's also hard to keep up um, and figure out how you can talk to everyone. Um, but that's really what I'm working on. And I think this book more than the first book, um, which is, I guess, just the benefits of, of you know, being where you are in your career uh, in different places, um, is much more geared towards the community. Right. And so even though it's still I mean, we, I have a ton of data. We created data. There's a ton of data from Durham because I live there. So I have two exit polls from Durham. Um, I have over 60 interviews from organizations and candidates and people serving in office in Durham over time. We created a data set of Durham City Council votes. So um, if you study other levels of, of government, you might have a downloadable data set of like, well, what were they passing? Who voted yes for who vote? None of that exists for local politics. So we created one of those. Um, we have a, we, you know, we created this data set with 100 cities plus the diverse and least diverse cities. Um, and we have measures for full incorporation going back to Brownie Marshall and TAB where the mayor's office is held by a, 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 a member that's, that's a person of color um, to the size of their, their council to, you know, is it Ward and at large, um, you know, are you know, is there term limit? So we have this huge data set. Um, and then we have a ton of interviews from these coalitions to figure out how did you decide, what strategy were you were going to use? How did you decide, you know, did you go in knowing that there were council members that were going to be amenable and not? How did you try to get them to change their mind? Um, And and places where they were successful and places where they weren't. Um, and so that's sort of what the book is about. And again, it's hopefully much more prescriptive in offering communities a roadmap of, again, it's politics. You win sometimes, you lose sometimes. But if there's something that you really want to see changed in your community, what are some some, some plans that you might make to sort of see those changes come uh, to your
2: community. And so when you finish that book, will you come back on the new books and political science podcast and talk to me about it?
0: Yes, of course. Hopefully in a more
2: timely fashion. That's fine. It's no big deal. <laughs> yes. Yes. Of um, course. Uh, but I look forward, cause it sounds like it's sort of the other side of what you're looking at in this book. Um, yeah. Exactly. And I, and it sounds like they're really nice bookends to one in one another also in terms of also learning about local politics or understanding how local politics has ins and outs in ways that a lot of times we don't pay attention to it because it's not about the president. So,
0: yes, I tell people all the time. Sometimes I am completely not knowledgeable about what's going on at the national level. But I can tell you random facts about your city and random <laughs> votes that they had or random candidates that you had or different scandals. I'm very aware of the local things and sometimes less aware of national things, which is probably not good, but it's how I'm currently living my life.
2: Well, I think it's fine. <laughs> I think it's fine. There are scandals all over the place. So it makes it all interesting. Thank you, Andrea Benjamin, for joining me today to talk about racial coalition building and local elections elite cues and cross ethnic voting. For anybody who's interested, this was published by Cambridge university press in 2017. It's a really interesting book. Um, and I, um, look forward to reading your next book, Andrea. Thank you so much. And just, it did
0: come out in 2019 in paperback. So now it's affordable.
2: Now just- it's affordable at the Cambridge university press website. Correct.
0: Yes. All right. Thank
2: you All right. Thanks so much.